Hey everybody, this is Rave Telsh, and this is episode 4 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie selected specifically by our guest that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Boy, the internet has been in a bit of a tizzy this week. I'm not going to get into covering current events or news, but I did want to chime in on this, as just about everybody has at this point. But notable filmmaker Martin Scorsese really set the internet ablaze with words he said about the Marvel Cinematic Universe while he was busy promoting his upcoming film, The Irishman. Empire Magazine asked him about the Marvel movies, and his response was, I don't see them. I tried, you know, but that's not cinema. Honestly, the closest I can think of them, as well-made as they are, with actors doing the best they can under the circumstances, is theme parks. It isn't the cinema of human beings trying to convey emotional, psychological experiences to another human being. I find these words really interesting, and of course, Scorsese is more than welcome to his take on what is and what is not cinema, because he's such a notable filmmaker. But at the same time, art is subjective. It isn't in one person's control to dictate what is and what is not art. And the more I've thought about those words that he said, the more it makes me think about the movies that we've already gone through over the course of this podcast. For instance, our very first episode, we looked at Alien. And one of the things we talked about with Alien was how notable film critic Roger Ebert responded to the movie when it first came out, and then how his opinion about that movie changed when he went back and looked at it 10-15 years later. We need to have a separation from art in order to truly formulate an opinion about it. What is popular now may not be popular 10, 15, 20 years from now. And we see that all the time. Look at films that win Oscars and then suddenly totally vanish from public consciousness. Now, there was an argument as to whether Brokeback Mountain or Crash truly deserved the Oscar of the year that they were contenders for the award. And I would argue now that those films have practically disappeared from the public consciousness. Last year's Green Book, critics almost immediately said it was the wrong pick for Best Picture because it's going to be so easily forgotten. And yet we decide to reply to films, to respond to films, to critique films the second they come out, instead of taking a lengthy look at what these could be. And Alien is certainly representative of that. Scorsese's comment about Marvel films is certainly like that. How are we going to think about the Marvel Cinematic Universe in another 10 years? Will it still be the epic achievement that it is right now? And my guess is yes. Are Scorsese's films, like Casino or Goodfellas or his upcoming Irishman, going to be still remembered in 10-15 years as ma major achievements? My guess is yes, because they both have their place. Uh, again, looking at films that we've talked about in the past, Dewey Cox, our second episode, it was not well received when it came out. It did not do well at the box office. And yet it brought about a change to the genre that it was parodying for a decade. We got away from the tropes that that movie pointed out. So are Marvel films art? I would argue yes. Are what Scorsese says art? I would say yes. Is Alien or Dewey Cox art? 
again, I would say yes. We don't revisit these films because they're meaningless. We revisit them because they give us meaning. And if they give us meaning, then they are absolutely justifiable as an art form. I think it goes to something I've talked about in the past, and I know many film critics have talked about in the past, which is different forms of art require a different approach or are built for a different audience. The films of Michael Bay probably will fade with time, much like the 80s action films that Arnold Schwarzenegger starred in. But the truth is they're still in the public consciousness. They're popcorn movies. We sit down, we watch them to have a fun experience, but that doesn't deprive them from being cinema. They are still viable examples of the art form. And I absolutely love Scorsese's films, just like I absolutely love the Marvel Cinematic movies. So I don't think one person gets to say whether or not something is cinema. And I think we all way overreacted to Scorsese's words. But, you know, that's good PR for him and his upcoming film. Speaking of film critics, here's a quote. Whether this movie is at all appealing to a viewer comes down to a simple question of belief. Does missionary work save a culture or obliterate it? Sociology dictates cultures must be studied within their own environment without any sort of interference to be properly appreciated and understood. By that sociological perspective, the film features the destruction of a native people. However, the Christian missionaries within the movie, based on real-life people and events, see their work as saving the people, not destroying them. The simple difference in perspective will determine whether the movie tells a good story or a bad one. Now, I wrote that review about the film End of the Spear. But it was the first thing that came to mind when I was sitting down and watching this week's movie for the very first time. And while we're connecting movies from the past of the podcast, this one's close to our last film with those similar kinds of events. While Princess Mononoke depicted indigenous inhabitants as animals and animal spirits, the concept's still very similar. And the reason I didn't pursue that conversation very deeply on that movie is because I knew we'd be coming to this film, 1987's The Mission. This movie was picked by Owen Merritt, who was briefly a regular contributor to the old podcast. He's close to the last voice that we'll have from the old podcast. So for those of you who are new and are tired of me bringing back the past, it's almost done. But I really appreciated Owen bringing up 1987's The Mission, a film that despite starring Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons, I hadn't even heard of until Owen brought it to my attention. So that's what we're looking at this week. Here we go with the mission. So one thing I wanted to bring up uh, was your days on the old podcast. Yeah. Because we had a private conversation and, and something, you know, that, that you and I talked about, but that, that you felt kind of like you were being made the butt of the joke. And I, I don't know if that's actually what contributed to you deciding to leave the show. I know we had, I, I, it was funny because I looked back at emails the other day, because in my head, that's what had caused you to leave the show. And then when I looked at the emails, they were months apart and your decision to leave was kind of vague, but just thanks for the opportunity, but I'm going to go. I mean, I enjoyed doing that podcast with you. I really did. And I did feel, and it wasn't necessarily you, um, there were some other personalities involved, but that one particular, and, and, and I do remember it, it does stick out to me, it, it did uh, bother me for whatever reason, and maybe I was too sensitive, maybe it was not as big a deal as it I needed to make it to be, but uh, yeah, it bothered me. Um, 
And at the time I was going through, you know, I mean, I had just had a divorce. I had, I was trying to find my, uh, um, you know, a a new social niche through the board gaming thing. Um, And I kind of felt pretty proud about what I was building with the board gaming thing. And I felt that this thing that I had some pride in was being mocked. And and I'm not going to say that's why I left the podcast. I think I left the podcast partly because of time, because I did need to focus on other things. Um, But I'm not going to say that that didn't have some relevance to why I left. Well, and the more, you know, it's obviously it's stuck with me for quite a few years that, that, that correspondence and then that thought. And I did, you know, apologize to you when you first brought it up to me. And part of the reason I wanted to bring it up here was because I feel like you deserve a public apology for the way we treated you, because you're right. We were making fun of the game night. And I think it's funny that, you know, years later when, when I ended up in that exact same situation, recently divorced, trying to find a new social niche, I turned to your board group. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah, you, you, you've been there a couple of times. Yeah. But but part of the problem was, uh, and not making excuses because I'm taking full responsibility for this, but part of the problem was my inability to change. That when you came in, you were kind of a replacement for someone who had been in that role of uh, being the butt of the joke. And they, they weren't intended to be in that role. They put themselves in that role. And when they left and you stepped in, I should have adapted to your personality and your ideas. And instead, I just tried to keep the, the status quo. Uh, that was completely my fault. That was a shortcoming on my part. So I just wanted to you know, publicly address that and say, man, I'm sorry, because I, I hold you in high regard. I enjoyed having you on the show. I'm, you were one of the first people. In fact, you were the first person I talked to about this podcast. And um, I know you don't consider yourself a film buff, which is great. I, I think that's fine. But you were one of the people I wanted to have on this show. Well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. That that means a lot. And I, uh, I've always held you in high esteem and I never really was terribly – it wasn't something that I held against you personally. Um, just the actual incident in which it happened was hurtful in that time, but I didn't hold it against you. Well, I just wanted to clear the air and as I said, just kind of publicly apologize that, you know, you deserved better and you were you were a good part of the show when you were on it and I'm glad to have you on this one. Well, thank you. Even if it has uh been a roller coaster ride of of movie selection. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So we started with what? The Princess Bride. Well, okay, so we started with you you came to me. Well, first of all, we we both work in the same place. So Right. You you came to me before uh we all got going one day and said, "Hey, I'm doing this podcast, and this is the the idea of the podcast is uh, movies that people should have seen and they haven't seen." Um, that was kind of how I interpreted it, anyway. I'm not sure that's exactly how you said it, but movies that they should have seen that they sh- that they um, haven't seen yet. So my first thought was, you know, Princess Bride. Obviously, everyone should see that. Um, then I went to Blade Runner because literally I haven't seen that movie, right? Because that was my interpretation of what you were going with, but it turns out it's that's. Me, me, me! Picking a movie I haven't seen is, is flipping your script. Yeah, which I was excited to do, but yeah, it was a flip the script kind of thing where I have seen it and you hadn't. Right, right. Which you still need to fix, by the way. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it's actually still sitting on my. I, I, I have your copy, and I haven't watched it yet. Sorry. <laughs> I need to do that. <laughs> it's, it's not like I don't have time right now. 
so we went, but we went from Princess Bride. Uh, other movies you had brought up were uh, The Last Starfighter. That's yeah, I remember that. Yep, yep. Jacob's Ladder. Well, that was partly because we could share in the uh, whole mailman thing, right? Um, and then suddenly one day you came in and you went, "I'm changing my movie. Uh, I want to do this one, which is 1986's The Mission." So the reason that I, I'm surprised that I didn't think of this first, but it was my wife who, so I was explaining to my wife that, Hey, my buddy Rafe wants to do a podcast and this is the idea. And she said, Oh, so you chose the mission, right? And it it just kind of staggered me. I was like, well, no, but Holy fuck. I probably should have because this has (laughs) probably been one of my favorite movies of all time. The reason she, she recommended that to me was that it was one of the first movies I ever made her watch. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I've been talking about the mission uh, to to my wife for as long as I've known her, as far as I know. It's it it has it has it's a it's a movie that has stuck with me since the first time I ever saw it. Okay, that that's that's why I probably should have chosen it and should have crossed my mind. It was actually it was either if if we're doing a movie that people should see that I've seen that others haven't, it, it came down to either this or um, Empire of the Sun. Which, if I ever come back on your show, I'd love to do Empire of the Sun. By the way. <laughs> well, the plan right now is not to have repeat guests, but uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Little in this world unfolds as we predict. Indeed, how could the Indians have supposed that the death of this unsung priest would bring among them a man whose life was to become inextricably intertwined with their own? <laughs> Tell them. They must leave the mission. They say it was the will of God that they came out of the jungle and built the mission. They don't understand why God has changed his mind. You should never have become a priest. But I am a priest and they need me. If you die with blood on your hands, you betray everything we've done. If might is right, love has no place in the world. A man of war. A man of peace. A land of timeless beauty. An age of conquest. The laws of heaven. Uh, all right. So, um, as I said, 1986 is The Mission, directed by Roland Joffe, uh, written by Robert Bolt and starring Robert De Niro, Jeremy Irons, Ray McNally, Aidan Quinn, uh, Liam Neeson, among others. Yep. Um, so, the first question is how do you describe this movie to someone who has not seen it? 
if I say I have not seen this movie, which a couple of weeks ago I hadn't, uh, how do you how do you sell them on this movie? Oh God, uh, it's a powerful, poignant movie uh, about redemption, obedience, uh, struggle between internal faith and the laws of man and the role and idea of religion as interpreted and carried out through human politics. I guess during the age of colonialism, which sounds very boring. However, it is a beautiful, moving, haunting movie. Uh, cinematography, the score are breathtaking. Acting is top notch. Uh, it, it's again, it's it is it, it easily makes my top three. So you said you fell in love with this from the first time you saw it. Why? What about this connects with you? Why? Why is this your choice? I can't honestly remember exactly how old I was. I had to have been 12-ish, 13-ish, somewhere in that range. So I didn't see it in the theaters. When it came out in the theaters, I would have been seven. But my dad, I think, rented it. And I don't know, maybe, maybe part of it, now that I'm thinking about it, is the fact that I watched it with my dad, which a lot of things with my dad resonate with me. But the movie itself just has stuck with me ever It has so many memorable, just, Frozen uh, cinematic moments, uh, you know, the, 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 the priest going over the waterfall, uh, Robert De Niro's uh, redemption when he uh, comes into the tribe. Um, just so many moments that just stick out to me as – and then again at the very end when you've got just the children of this tribe. They're the only ones that have survived all of this, and they're trying to pick up what pieces that are left and paddle back into the jungle and try and make something of what's left. It, it, it's just, it's so powerful to me. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, I mean, it definitely has some, some stirring images and, and you're right. That score is phenomenal. Yeah. So it, it's not the most widely embraced movie. It uh, currently sits at 64% on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, although it's 87% audience score. So yeah. the critics have given it a 64% combined, but the audience 87%. It's sitting at 55% at Metacritic. To look at a couple of reviews, uh, I always like to pull in Roger Ebert, and his review was not incredibly positive. I know. I read it. He says, the mission feels exactly like one of those movies where you'd rather see the documentary about how the movie was made. You'd like to know why so many talented people- Which, by the way, is also interesting. (laughs) You'd like to know why so many talented people went to such incredible lengths to make a difficult and beautiful movie without any of them on the basis of the available evidence having the slightest notion of what the movie was about. There isn't a moment in the mission that is not watchable, but the moments don't hold up to a coherent narrative. At the end, we can sort of piece things together, but the movie has never really made us care. On the flip side, I pulled a review from the Washington Post by Rita Kempley, and she says, The mission effectively dramatizes yet another chapter in the ruthless European conquest of the Americas. It'll make you hate the whole of Western civilization with every fiber of your being. The mission is majestic, sometimes moving sometimes mawkish. Should you choose to accept it, your religious tolerance will be tested. But there are rewards, fascinating insights into the Byzantine business of diplomacy and gorgeous photography of the roaring Igazu Falls, an Eden of fog and roaming water, and the sleepy walled city of Cartagena. But it also won uh, the 1986 Cannes Film Festival Palme d'Or and the Top Technical Grand Prize. It's uh, number one on the top 50 religious films of 2007, according to the London Anglican Church Times. It's one of 15 movies on the Vatican's list of 45 great films in the religion category. 
The Australian Broadcasting Corporation ranked the score number one on its classic 100 movies in the music list 2013, and it was nominated for seven Academy Awards. So it's an interesting, usually you, you have overwhelming love or overwhelming hate, and this one almost feels like it's the middle ground where some people really like it and some people didn't. Well, first of all, uh, Roger Ebert is wrong. <laughs> um, but also, I would challenge anyone who watches this movie to ignore the religious overtones that – I mean all, all these religious sites that you that you um, cited that say, you know, this is it, – it's – yeah, it has religious um, – the Jesuits are there to try and um, convert them. But it, it really doesn't have – a lot to necessarily do with, in fact, the actual director. I was reading an article, Tom, um, from uh, New York Times. The director said that it could easily have been about Russian commissars who showed up in Spain during the Civil War uh, to announce that due to necessity of preserving socialism in one country, aka the Soviet Union, uh, they could not supply arms to the Spanish. His argument is that what he was trying to go for is pragmatism can be destructive. It's not necessarily – it doesn't have to be religious in nature. I mean it is in terms of the actual imagery and the characters that are involved, but it doesn't have to be a religious movie. Yeah, and I didn't see it as a religious movie per se. Um, I mean I definitely think it has some religious aspects to it, but I didn't – I found it interesting that it was on all the religious tech, all these religious works, um, because I didn't perceive it as being particularly glorifying of a religious vantage point. No, and I mean, I'm not a particularly religious person, um, despite coming from a religious background. That's just, that's not who I am. And the movie didn't resonate with me from a religion point of view. I mean, it was much more to me about the idea of obedience. Um, when is it okay to obey and when is it okay to disobey and, and, and bureaucracy and structure and, you know, human – because if anything, the Roman Catholic Church is the bad guy in this movie. Oh, yeah. The Roman Catholic Church is portrayed as – I mean, you've got the cardinal coming out to try and – I mean, it's all it's all based on an actual historical edict from I, I, I think it's actually from the the, the Pope at the time um, dividing South America between the Spanish and the Portuguese. And so you've got these two major colonial powers trying to divide the land and not caring about the people that are already on the land between their two powers, and of course, the Spanish power uh, has behind it, uh, or not the, the the Jesuits have the Spanish power behind them. And if whatever land that they are trying to assist uh, falls under Portuguese hands, then the Jesuits no longer have power because the Spanish have no power there. And that's the whole point of this movie. Yeah, it's more political than religious. It's absolutely political. I mean, religion. And this is, but, but religion as a a structure, an entity, or an organization, all it is, all all religion is, is the structure that boxes in uh, spirituality and faith. It's a bureaucracy, and I think that's where this movie 
kind of draws the light is that you, you've got the people who really truly believe in what they're trying to accomplish through their religion, but their religion, or their hang on, their faith, their spirituality is boxed in by their religion. And once you have an entity, a structure, a human structure, that the, the, the main mission behind that human structure becomes self-preservation. And in this movie, the self-preservation of the Roman Catholic Church takes precedent over what is actually important to the people on the ground. Well, and I've, that's almost opposed or contrasted by the concept of the self-preservation of the the Jesuits. The, there's even a line in there where they ask, you know, what is at issue here? Land, slavery, rights? No, it comes down to this is more about the continued existence of the Jesuits, and these people are caught in the middle. Yeah, very much. It's sad to think that so much of what European society did, uh, they came in and they thought they might have some, you know, really, they, they should not have done so much about religion. They should just set up a good postal system. <laughs> all, all society needs a good postal system. Shout out to the USPS. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so the idea of the mission, the title itself has probably two or three different levels to it. It's not just about the actual physical structure. Um, every single major character in the movie has their own personal mission. Hmm. If you think about it, and every single major character is following their mission to the letter of how they interpret what their mission is. Yeah, I definitely, I can see that. My problem with movies like this. You didn't like it. I get it. No, no, no. It's not that I, my, my problem with movies like this in general is that the sociological impacts of conversion of religion coming in and deciding that these people are savages and they need to be converted. And essentially what they're doing is wiping out a culture and replacing it with their own. No question. They may not be wiping out the people, but they are wiping out the culture. And this movie almost doesn't touch on that side of things. It does set the Jesuits up as kind of the good guys and the Portuguese slave traders as the bad guys. And when we get later in the movie and there's a physical genocide going on, that's certainly true. But at the same time, what the Jesuits have done is just as damaging to the culture as the physical genocide is. And, the and I don't, I don't argue that, that. I do not argue that fact. That is very true. However, you can't, you have to take history for what it is. History is not always clean. History is not always uh, right. History has been dominated on this side of the globe by the Europeans. Should it have been? Possibly not. Probably not. But it has been. And you can't argue away the fact that it has been simply by saying, well, it shouldn't have. Yeah. Now, the closest the movie gets to addressing that is that the Cardinal does have a line in there. At the very um, end? That, no, it's towards the middle. Um, that these Indians could not have preferred that the sea and air had not brought any of us to them. Oh, sure. Yeah. 
and and that's true. I, I, you know, if if neither side had arrived, they would have continued to live their lives, and would they have been perceived by the the Europeans as savages? Sure, but they also would still have their lives and would have their culture. Very true. I, I also think one of the most telling lines in the movie uh, is at the very end, also by the cardinal, when one of the uh, either the Portuguese or the Spanish, I don't remember, governors said, you know, this they have to live in the world, and the world is thus. And the the cardinal says, no, thus have we made the world. And then he whispers, thus have I made the world. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, and that's an incredible line. It's a nice little um, period at the end of the, the sentence of the movie. You know, it's, I, I, that, that's a powerful line. In fact, I wish they had ended it with that line. Um, instead, he has a little bit more that he goes on through. But I, that, that would have been the perfect uh, last line. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about the the these, I guess, uh, to to go the way you phrased it, these these individual missions that these characters are on. Starting with Rodrigo, played by Robert De Niro, who mm, starts cast. out. Cast. Oh God, it's a phenomenal cast. So Rodrigo is a mercenary and a slave trader at the beginning, and we when we first see him. You you have this start staunch contrast between him and Father Gabriel, played by Jeremy Irons, and it, I, I almost was a little thrown when the movie then follows Rodrigo from capturing a bunch of the Indians, and he goes to town and he has his family, he has his brother, um, who obviously looks up to him and who he's trying to help groom him. Yep, yep. No, see, I, I do feel that the movie kind of glossed over some of that that that, that relationship there. I agree. And I wish they had belted up more because then the you know the event that causes the change in the character is when he finds out that his girlfriend, wife, I couldn't tell, mistress, mistress is then infatuated with his brother. Right. And in fact, Lee Rodrigo loses his woman to his brother and he knows his temper. He gets angry and he storms off. And if Felipe had just let, it let go. him walk away- yep. Yep. Then things probably would have gone fine, but instead he insists on stopping Rodrigo and Rodrigo kills him. And then the movie jumps ahead six months and Rodrigo has been at the Abbey there for six months trying to atone, but also realizing that there is no atonement for the fratricide that he has committed. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel that the movie kind of, again, glossed over a lot of, what could have been some character development in that regard. I agree. There is nothing else. That is life. There is no life. There is a way out, Mendoza. For me, there is no redemption. God gave us the burden of freedom. You chose your crime. Do you have the courage to choose your penance? Do you dare do that? There is no penance hard enough for me. So Rodrigo is invited by uh, Gabriel to join the clergy. And I, I love the way he puts that about, you know, about what it, if you will try. Yeah. And we watch them making their way back to the, the physical mission with Rodrigo weighed down by his armor and weapons. He's carrying them in a net and he's dragging them behind him and he's insisting on making the same trek that everyone else is making. He's dragging his past behind him. He's dragging his identity. His identity. Absolutely. Yes. That's yeah. And he's, and and that's part of why he can't find atonement. Separate him from it. He ties it back. 
Right. That part of the reason he can't find atonement is because he's refusing to leave that behind. Right. And those are some painful scenes to watch of him dragging all of that. I mean, I, th- I think it's, it, it's great directing and great acting during that because there's no dialogue. Yeah. Well, except for um, when Liam Neeson's character approaches Gabriel and says, yeah, you know, yeah. I feel like I feel like he's done enough. The other brothers think so, too. And Gabriel says he doesn't think he has. And so I right. don't either. Right. And so I find it interesting that they lay that foundation. But then when he gets to the Indians, as the movie calls them. So that's what terminology we'll use. Yes. Fair enough. When he gets to the Indians, the first thing they do is cut the armor loose and throw it over the side. Well, no, technically the first thing the guy does is put the knife to his throat. Well, true. And the leader of the Indians says, um, again, it's, it's in the language and it's not subtitled. So you don't know. Um, But then he cuts it away. So it's all metaphorical. It's all like, he's literally metaphorically cutting away his guilt and his past. But, and I guess the, the, conflicting feeling I have on that is they've set this up that he needs to be the one to let it go. And he drags it all the way with him because he hasn't let it go yet. And then he's not given the choice to let it go. The Indians remove it for him. But the other side of that is he's been choosing all along to let the people he's been subjugating choose for him. True. The, the priest has no right from his point of view to separate him from this past. Because he hasn't been in conflict with the priest. So when the priest cuts it and he goes back down and he reties it and starts coming back up the mountain again, the only only people that can truly metaphorically separate him from his past is the people that he has been hunting. And so that's who does it. And I think that ties in really well with then he, he chooses to to take the cloth to become one of the, the brothers. Right. Um, to join the Jesuits and they give him a, a book to read and you have a, a, just a very understated reading of a uh, verse from De Niro. And it talks about how, um, when I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things, but now abideth faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And that's almost what you have with that armor being cut and thrown off the side is that's, that's the putting away of childish things that Mendoza has, has just been a child to this point, And this is his opportunity. This is his growth. This is his opportunity to become an adult and become a, a priest. Yeah. No, fair enough. That character, I will say, there isn't a lot of character growth in this movie with the exception of Mendoza. That, that that's one of the, I mean, when I watched it at 12 years old, not one of the things that I would have necessarily noticed, but when I watched it at 42, you know, I re noticed that there are elements that should probably be a little more explored, such as character growth. And you don't see that a lot in anything other than Robert De Niro's character. Do you think, that because the Indians are the ones who cut the weapons, uh, you know, cut his burden from him. We'll just put it that way. Since they're the ones that cut his burden from him and he still wasn't the one who rejected that former identity. 
Do you think that's part of the reason he has trouble adjusting to his new identity as a priest? Because in the movie, we have the scene where he stands up to the council. He calls the uh, Portuguese representative a liar. And then when the final conflict is coming, he's willing to pick back up the sword. And I almost wonder if that's because he wasn't the one who willingly let go of his previous identity. I think the idea of Mendoza, the character Mendoza, he's a fighter. That's that's who he is. That's who he always has been. That And that's what he knows. And as a fighter, as the representation of, if you will, violence, he hasn't always and will never truly buy into what the Jesuits offer. He is the movie's reason for offering, you know, faith versus violence, the idea of love and acceptance and non-pacifism, or rather pacifism versus non-pacifism. He understands who the Jesuits are. He understands what they stand for. He understands why they do what they do. But there still needs to be – sometimes if you can't necessarily talk things out, there has to be a violent repercussion. And that's who Mendoza is in this movie. I would almost disagree with you on him understanding. I I think he yearns to understand. Okay. But when he picks back up the sword – and he, he's going to fight for these people. He goes to Gabriel and he asks him to give him his blessing. And he won't. Father, I've come to ask you to bless me. Now. If you're right, you'll have God's blessing. If you're wrong, my blessing won't mean anything. If might is right, love has no place in the world. Maybe so. Maybe. And he won't. And I almost wonder if him even asking for the blessing shows that he doesn't, he still doesn't understand the Jesuits' ways. It's a valid point. One I hadn't thought about and I don't have a response for. <laughs> When the the one thing I, I do like is that you know Gabriel won't give him his blessing, but he does give him uh, the cross from around his neck. Yeah, and and I, I guess because I've seen too many cheap uh, action movies, my first thought when he gave him the cross was, if that stops a freaking bullet later in the movie, I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> Which thankfully doesn't happen. Oh yeah, no, it does not. It's not that kind of a movie. <laughs> if anything, I think Mendoza's death accentuates who Mendoza has become. He, for most of his, his, at least the life that we are aware of in South America, we have no idea what he was when he was in Spain. I mean, we, we, we literally watched him kill, like he would capture a bunch of natives in a net. And then those that ran away, he sh- turned and shot in the back. He didn't, he didn't care about their, them or their lives. Uh, however, at the end of the movie, he is doing everything he can to defend the location and uh, uh, the mission, but I'm not trying to put the movie name in it. It's irrelevant because it's it's just the location where all these indigenous people are located. And part of what his defense is, is to blow up a bridge across a river. And in 
instead of blowing up the bridge, he sees a child who's been injured. He goes to help that child, a child of a people he has been oppressing for however many years. And because he went to help that child, the enemy, if you will, uh, was able to cut the explosives and he wasn't able to blow up the bridge and he's shot and killed because he helped that child. So he went to help the child of the indigenous people he has been enslaving. And as a result, he's killed by the people that he's been working for up until then. And I think that's pretty telling. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's consequences of changing sides. It's consequences of his new identity, but it's also that that's almost his moment of, of penance and atonement. It is. It is definitely a moment of penance. Yes, I agree. All right, let me change characters here, unless you have anything else you want to add in about Rodrigo. No, no, we're good. Okay. Because I, I, I wasn't originally planning on taking this take, but you know your, your idea of each character being on their own individual mission, I, I liked that. So let's, let's look at Gabriel for a minute. When we first see him, he also is in a moment of guilt because the, the opening shot of the movie is the, the Indians sending a Jesuit over the falls uh, strapped to a cross that they've killed and they've put him adrift and sent him over the falls. And they, they right. didn't like, I guess the, him trying to come and convert them. And you have the conversation between Liam Neeson's character and, and Jeremy Irons character about going and taking a second chance at it. And Jeremy Irons take is I'm the one who sent him. I, I have to be the one to go. And we follow him as he climbs up the falls and when he gets into their territory, instead of taking an aggressive approach, he sits and pulls out his oboe and starts playing music. Yes. Yes, he does. And when they come and are in part marveled by the music, then he, he's starting to kind of earn his place there. But they also their leader breaks the instrument. And I, I find it interesting that there's there's no – reaction from him on that point. I guess he knows what happened to the previous Jesuit, that if he responds to that, then it's going to end badly for him. I agree. I think he he basically goes up there with the knowledge that there's a good likelihood, whatever I do, I'm going to get killed. You think so? I do. I do. I think that he literally goes up because the, the guy that just went before him was killed. I think he is going up there with the hope and the intent of trying to make some kind of peaceful aspirations, you know, to the to, to, to the indigenous people. But I think that he is expecting the not expecting to die, but the expecting the possibility of being martyred. I don't think that he's doing it for that reason, but I think that he's willing to believe that it could happen. So when I see that scene, when I, when I watch that scene, he's up there in the glade uh, by the river on the stone, just playing his oboe, hoping that the natives are going to come, and they do. And if you watch him, he's definitely very aware of the fact that they're around him. He's aware of the fact that whatever they do, he'll accept it. You know, he, he, he's going to do he, – he's not going to fight whatever that they throw at him. So do you think his journey up there is one of potential self-sacrifice or just of acceptance? I think it's a potential self-sacrifice. I think that 
ultimately what he wants is an icebreaker, if you will. It's interesting because that means both of our major characters have self-sacrifice in involved in some way, whether it's Rodrigo towards the end willing to sacrifice himself for the people or Gabriel at the beginning willing to sacrifice himself for the effort of converting these people. Yes, I think that's that's absolutely true. Again, the the another one of the weird jumps that the film makes is we see him surrounded by the Indians and then the film jumps forward to a point where he has been embedded in their society and they've started creating the physical mission and such. We don't really get to see a whole lot of of that process. It just kind of jumps over it. That's true. And then Gabriel's major conflict comes with the arrival of the church and the um Portuguese trying to change the the ownership of the land and whether or not the mission is protected. And he's several times being told, you know, the Jesuits need to be careful. We're talking about the extinction of the Jesuits if this goes poorly. And he doesn't seem to care about the the bureaucracy or the existence of his own order. He is more concerned with the people. He's more concerned with the sheep under his protection than the order that he's supposed to be a part of. Which I think is a one of the major thematic elements of the film. I mean, you've got the idea of religion as a a structure, an entity. The the idea of religion, religion is a box in which spirituality and faith are contained. And I I mean I'm I'm not religious, but the idea of the church it becomes a a, a human construct. And once you have a human construct, the primary purpose of that human construct is self-sustaining, is making sure that it it, it continues. And the Roman Catholic Church in this movie is all about making sure that it continues through the geopolitical structures that are set in, you know, 1750. The idea of what the church was literally supposed to do. Again, this is why I don't necessarily view this as a religious film. I mean, yes, it has religious ideas and ideology, but it's not about Christianity. Right. It's not. It is about human greed. It is about human bureaucracy. And it is about human pragmatism. Well, and I think we, we see that as Gabriel's story continues. And, you know, he he brings the Cardinal to his own mission, hoping that that will change his mind about what direction to take. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't go particularly well. We actually end up seeing them raiding that particular uh, mission. Yeah. Right. Right. And when he's told he has to leave, he tells the people he will stay, but he is not going to change his identity. Uh, He is maintains the same character that he has been from the beginning. So while Rodrigo and the other Jesuits and the Indians are all preparing for the battle, he is holding service. I think one of the most telling scenes in the movie is one that is often overlooked. You go to the well-established mission where you actually have a priest, a Jesuit, um, who is a native, and he has explained to the cardinal 
why this particular mission is important. But then when the missions are overtaken, that priest, that native, is asked to disrobe, and you watch him disrobe, and he he's thrown into the line of the slaves. Right. I mean, it's it's almost more telling than some of the other uh, thematic scenes in the movie, which is, I think, kind of glossed over. But it's a very powerful scene, in my opinion. Oh, I agree. So Gabriel's identity, Gabriel's belief doesn't really get him any better than Rodrigo in the end. Uh, as he and the women and the children are leaving the burning church and continuing service. It does make for a very cinematic, awesome viewpoint. Oh, agreed. Cross out and the thing burning behind them and all the people, it, it, was, it was amazing. Yeah. and uh, But he is shot down as well. Yep. And I, the power of what Gabriel has accomplished, I think, comes in that moment where he is shot down and he's carrying the um, carrying the mantle of the church there and he's shot down. And instead of scattering, the people continue with the song, and one of the little boys picks up the mantle and continues the the march out of the church. Yes, absolutely. And that that to me, that little boy kind of represents the culmination of what both Gabriel and Rodrigo have done here. They've both given their lives in a way that that kid continues on, but he also continues on in the way that the Jesuits taught him. But then you have to wonder – at the end of this movie, it's only the children that and, – and only a few of the children that survive this massacre because most of the tribe is decimated. I mean, well, I mean they're, they're killed. They're Well, it's essentially genocide going on, yes. Yeah, no. My hesitation was decimated is overused because decimated means 10%. And right. <laughs> okay, Adrian. Yeah, 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 yeah. But so let's assume that this one child – who is the one that picked up the cross and kept moving is one of the ones that actually escaped into the, so maybe the faith made it with the children that survived into the, but what does that mean to them? Like what is the faith that they have been fought for and lost their entire adult population and tribe? Does that really mean anything to them anymore? Now that they've made it away and they've escaped back into the jungle. Well, and that's, I mean, yeah, that's a, fantastic follow-up on what I was saying at the beginning is now these are kids who have lost all their adults. Their culture has been destroyed by the Jesuits. Their people have been destroyed by the uh, slave traders. What do they have? Where do they go from here? And the movie doesn't give us an answer on that because it can't. Yeah, no, it can't. And it's, it's, it's a shame. It, it really, that has always kind of been to me to, one of the most haunting elements of this movie is the fact that you don't know what happens to them. You don't know exactly where they're going. You don't know exactly what's in their future. The idea that, you know, post battle, they've been able to recover a few items, but on the whole, you know, in truth, they're screwed. I mean, they have no, no, Elders, no adults, no nothing uh, that's going to help them pass along past generations because all that's been killed. Well, and that that goes back to the problem that I brought up at the start, which isn't a problem with this movie, but it's just a problem with with what really happened, which is that the conversion is wiping out 
culture from a sociological standpoint, it's it's a, another way of of murder, and that's what those kids are left with at the end. Is their their families have physically been murdered, and their culture is dead, and we don't. Where do they go from here? And uh, they don't know where to go, and we certainly don't know where they went. And uh, yeah, it's it's an ethical issue. It's not an issue with this movie by any means. This movie is just depicting what happened. All right, let's look at the third. What I feel like is the third st- personal mission. And maybe the most important one in a certain way of looking at this film, and and that is the mission of the Cardinal uh, Altamirano, because we open with his monologue, mm-hmm. and we close with his monologue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I already pointed out one of his poignant lines is that they um, may wish that we had never come here, that, that sea and air had not brought any of us to them. You brought up his poignant end line about Thus, we have made the world. Thus, I have made right. the world. Right. With the death of Gabriel and the death of Rodrigo, and with him opening and closing the movie, it's almost as if this movie ultimately is about Altamirano's guilt over what happened. Yeah. I mean, I could totally see that as being – had it been filtered differently, had it been – uh, edited differently, I think that would have been a really good way of, of 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 presenting this movie is the guilt of the cardinal. Because I honestly think of all the acting in this movie, and you've got Robert De Niro, you've got Jeremy Irons, you have some really high quality actors, but the acting, I mean, as a stage actor, uh, you know, community theater stage actor. I'm not saying that I'm the quality of Jeremy Irons or Robert Nero, but <laughs> as a stage actor in a community theater, I know that some of the hardest acting is the acting that's done without lines. Mm-hmm. And his character, most of his acting is done without lines. He actually really does a really good job of presenting his regret his understanding of the situation of what it is and not necessarily being okay with it, but having to deal with it. I I find it interesting because we've talked about the other two having self-sacrificing aspects to their character and he doesn't almost every decision he makes is self-serving, not self-serving church serving. Is, Is it church serving though? Because he's Catholic and he's making the decisions to try to protect the Jesuits. I mean, he's protecting the Jesuits, but he's only protecting the Jesuits because protecting the Jesuits helps protect the church. His role in this entire movie is protecting the bureaucratic and political interests of the Roman Catholic Church in Europe, which is ironic since all of this takes place nowhere near Europe. Right. But he's also the character who's absent from the battlefield in the end, that that he's responsible for this battle that occurs. Oh, he is. No question. But he's not a part of the physical battle. He has to live with the repercussions of what has happened. Which I think resonates in what he says at the very end of the movie. About thus is the world we've made or about yeah. the spirit of the dead will stay the alive in the memory of the living. I've made it. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I guess I don't feel like 
I don't feel like he regrets what he's done, but I feel like he's guilty over what he's done. I think if given the choice, he would make the same decision again. That's probably true. I think I agree. I think he would probably do the same thing over again because he has been brought up or he has been caught up in the bureaucracy of what is religion. The idea of the church as an entity, the church as a structure, as a human structure. I mean, he, he even says he used to be a Jesuit at one point. Correct. At Early in his life, he was a Jesuit. But he has now accepted the political, bureaucratic, human structures of what the church is and has abandoned what the Jesuits, I feel in this movie, really try and espouse, which is the true meaning of what religion might be, of what – not religion, but faith might be, of what Christianity or – I don't – I'm not a Christian, but uh, what, whatever uh, religion might be, the idea of love, the idea of hope, the idea of all what is good, um, mm-hmm. and all of what is good is lost when you put religion into a box of human structure, aka religion. Right. I just I wish the film had given us some. I don't know. I, I wish he had been woven in a little differently, you know, a, again, because the the way the film opens and ends and this letter that he's writing to, uh, I guess, the Pope, it, it gives us his sense of guilt. And because our other characters die, it, it really is almost that's the story that that's what this movie is about is his guilt. I can see that. There's that final shot. If you sit through all the credits, there's one last shot of him folding up the the missive that he's written and and stamping it and sending it off and he looks directly at the audience and i can't tell what they were uh, trying to do with that shot yeah i i agree actually that's that's a weird ending i'm not sure i can't defend that i don't know so let's take a look at some other movies uh the algorithm says these are movies that are recommended by other services uh, based on whether or not you liked this movie uh, so this is kind of lightning round. Do you know these movies? Do you like these movies? Would you equate these on the same page as The Mission? My bet is I won't know them. However, okay. let's give it a shot. All right. So here we go. Uh, the New World. The New World. Don't know it. Okay. The Crucible. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No. Uh, Gandhi. Gandhi? I'm, I'm, I'm assuming we're with the, the, the Ben. Uh, shit. What's his name? Ben Kingsley? Kingsley, not Ben Affleck. Obviously not Ben Affleck, but I I, I got the Ben right. Okay. Yeah, ben, ben Kingsley. Yes. Seen it? Like it? Equate it with this movie? I have seen it. I'm not sure I would necessarily equate it with the mission, but I guess I can kind of see it. Okay. All right. Les Miserables. Not the musical version, the Liam Neeson version, which I'm sure is why the algorithm is promoting That's it. That's exactly why, because it has Liam Neeson. Okay. <laughs> uh, the Killing Fields. Well, duh. Yeah, same, same director. director. Yeah. Angel Heart. I don't know it. Okay. We're No Angels. Don't know it. It's a comedy where Robert De Niro is is uh, playing a, uh, a Catholic priest, I think, if I remember correctly. Oh, well, that makes sense then. And then the weirdest one for me was The Untouchables. Huh. 
that yeah that doesn't seem to fit thematically at, at all. all yeah right all right we always close with a pop quiz are you ready sure why not let's go for it <laughs> All right. Filming on location in South American countries ran its risk with a majority of the crew eventually catching some form of amoebic dysentery, which major cast member reportedly avoided the disease, securing his badass status. A. Robert De Niro, B. Jeremy Irons, C. Liam Neeson, or D. Ray McNally. I'm going with badass. I'm going to have to say Robert De Niro. There you go. Reportedly, he did not catch the disease. Uh, the mission number two, the mission has the distinction of being the only best picture nominee that you're not nominated for writing or in any of the acting categories. However, it was the only best picture nominee that was nominated in what other category? A editing, B direction, C original score or D costume. Whether or not it's true, I'm going to go with score because this is one of the CDs when I was a child, I literally bought the CD of the score of the mission because it was so beautiful. I'm going to uh, go with score. Okay. It was the only best picture nominee that year that was also nominated in best original score. Yes. Uh, apparently th- I have good taste. Yeah. Apparently number three, Jeremy Irons would go on to play a Jesuit priest in a second movie. Definitely not a sequel to this one though. Right. Uh, where else does he don the cloth? A, Assassin's Creed, B, Dungeons and Dragons, C, Die Hard with a Vengeance, or D, The Man in the Iron Mask? Uh, the only movie of any of those that makes any historical relevant sense would be Iron Mask, I'll guess. There you go. Mostly I just wanted to remind people that Jeremy Irons had done Assassin's Creed and Dungeons and Dragons. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, I win. Uh, and number four, although in the mission – uh, Altamirano is a Catholic cardinal. In reality, he wasn't. Who did he represent in the historical account of these events? A, the Jesuits, B, the slave traders, C, the Catholics anyway, just not a cardinal, or D, an independent party? I'll go with the Catholics. No, he actually represented the Jesuits. Ah, all so right. Three out of four. That's actually the best we've hey. had so far, I think. So Hooray. there you go. Uh, you're not on the Twitter or that kind of stuff, are you? No, no, I'm I I don't understand technology. It, it's confusing me. <laughs> All right, anything you want to promote where people can find you or know what things you're doing or any anything like that? Uh, I mean, you're welcome to you know hang out around my route and see me deliver mail if you want to, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> te- technologically, no. All right. Owen, oh, thank you for introducing me to the mission. It may not be one of my favorite movies, but I'm glad I saw it, and uh, I think we've had a great conversation about it. Absolutely. I've enjoyed it. So, what do you think? Is the mission ultimately about the Cardinal's guilt, about the events depicted here? How can movies like this address the sociological concerns of conversion, or should they? And does this film really represent religion in the way its accolades seem to think that it does? Let me know what you think. You can find me at Town Hess on Twitter or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter. On Facebook, we are at Have Not Seen This Podcast or email me at Have Not Seen This at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's show, which follows the adventures of a halfling sent on an epic quest to save the world. This podcast is available on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or you can just use the RSS feed to subscribe through whatever podcatcher you prefer. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, although I'd appreciate it more if you just helped spread the word and help me build up some listeners. 
Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Owen Merritt for providing this week's conversation. Maybe you have a movie you'd like to talk about, one that means something to you or you're particularly astonished when you discover people have not seen. Come be a guest on the show. Head over to havenotseenthis.podbean.com, click the Be a Future Guest button, submit the form there, and we'll try to get you set up for a future episode. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This. Thank you.